Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Uh, actually, Francis is away uh, today, but we have a special guest in the studio with us today, a member of our local Carmelite community, Marika Zimmerman. How are you, Marika? Oh, I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you in the studio. We thought we'd do something a little different. Marika's actually been working, uh, volunteering for the last uh, many weeks with Radio Maria. And as a member of the Carmelite community, she's certainly familiar with what we've done here on Carmelite Conversations. And so we thought we'd have her in as she gets ready to make uh, her temporary promise in the Carmelite order uh, of seculars. And it would give us an opportunity to interview somebody who's in the midst of that process understand a little bit about uh, their history, what brought them to Carmel, and hopefully be able to relate that to so many of our listeners' individual experience. Or maybe someone out there has a question or uh, is thinking about going down a similar path, and it's our hope to be able to share uh, some uh, experiences that will enlighten that decision. Well, let's begin, Marika, if I, if I can impose on you, uh, to begin the program as we do each week with a prayer. Of course, today is the Feast of St. Bernard. Correct. Uh, and you've got a wonderful prayer of St. Bernard's that we're going to begin with. Okay, and uh, this is his prayer in praise of the Mother of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mary, our Mother, the whole world reveres you as the holiest shrine of the living God. For in you the salvation of the world dawned. The Son of God was pleased to take human form from you. You have broken down the wall of hatred, the barrier between heaven and earth, which was set up by man's first disobedience. In you heaven met earth, with divinity and humanity were joined in one person, the man-God. Mother of God, we sing your praises. But we must praise you even more. Our speech is too feeble to honor you as we ought. For no tongue is eloquent enough to express your wonders and beauty. Mary, most powerful, most holy, and worthy of all love, your name brings new life, and the thought of you inspires love in the hearts of those devoted to you. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Marika. I appreciate your uh, taking the time to do that. Um, we obviously have a great devotion to prayer in the Carmelite Order, and we want to understand a little bit about what drew you to that. I, I do want to reiterate for our listening audience, I feel compelled to do this about once a month, that uh, when we began this program, it was really fundamentally about uh, presenting to our listening audience the charism of the Carmelite order, an understanding of the importance of both meditative and contemplative prayer, some counsel or spiritual direction, if you will, uh, for those who may be wrestling at different stages of that. And of course, none of us claim to be experts, but we're all on this journey. We're all on the path that we do have our great saints as guides. And I think most especially the central theme for this a series of conversations which have gone on now for more than a year, Marika, are really about the unique aspect of applying the Carmelite charisms that I've just mentioned 
to secular society and to the secular right. world. And what a challenge that presents to us, but at the same time uh, seems in so many ways perfectly appropriate. So we want to touch on each of those themes tonight, but I want to begin first with a little bit of background on you. Um, let me ask you about your Christian upbringing, as I've discovered. Uh, you, of course, are a cradle Catholic. Correct. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about your upbringing, because I think so many times that helps us uh, understand and relate to what later in your life became a very uh, clear call, it sounds as though, uh, to join Carmel. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a first-generation Hungarian. Um, my parents were born and raised in um, Hungary, in Budapest, and uh, they grew up under a time um, under communism. But they were Catholics, and I know my mother in particular um, practiced her faith, and it got her into trouble as a little girl. And um, so she was quite a fighter, you know, in defense of her faith. And um, when uh, they came to this country, um, and they, they would go to churches. The Mass was, of course, in Latin. And I remember as a child, she would tell me that um, wherever she was, that she could always feel at home when she found a Catholic church because she would go into the Mass, and the Mass was the same no matter where she went. And that always melt, made her feel at home. And so um, when I was a little girl, um, I was baptized into the Catholic faith um, just uh, in the same month that I was born. And it was um, St. Stephen of Hungary Church in New York. And I didn't realize, you know, that that would be significant later on in my in my faith journey, just the name of the church, too, and how what an impact that would have on me. Now, I have to interrupt you just quickly. Have you been to St. Stephen's in um, in Vienna? Actually, uh, no, <laughs> uh-huh. but I was in the cathedral in Budapest where St. Stephen's Hand is in Corrupt. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> that was back in 1998. I know uh, I have the benefit of knowing that you've done a fair amount of traveling, and we want to touch on some of those uh, opportunities that you've had to uh, to experience uh, both the, the uh, Carmelite um, um, order in, in different parts of the country and overseas, uh, as well as other uh, journeys that you've taken. But um, I'm very interested in these early experiences that, that seem to have fashioned your preparation for Carmel. Uh, tell us okay, a little bit so, more about um, that. Well, like most kids, uh, I was enrolled in CCD at St. Joe's in a little town in Wisconsin, which is where I grew up. You know, We moved from New York. My parents wanted to raise me and my brother and my sister in, um, you know, kind of uh, suburbia, not not really the big city. And so that's a long story how we ended up getting there, but we did. And um, I was in CCD, and then the Vatican II, the changes started coming. I had my first communion, and then shortly thereafter, the Mass started to change, and my parents were quite upset with that. Um, so we would look for wherever we could find Latin Mass. And I remember, um, in particular, uh, one Christmas Eve, and this really left a huge I- impression on me, um, there was some things going on at the midnight mass, um, some liturgical changes, and it was just way out there. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of that. I just know that my mother stood up. This was right before mass, and she says, "This is no longer a Catholic church," and we left. Now this is just outside. <laughs> I was of- in grade school. This was in Waukesha. Okay. And oh. um, it was the church where I received my first communion, mm-hmm. and I remember feeling very sad and very empty that Christmas. Um, so we would look for churches where we could go, and um, that would later change because we would find um, Latin masses here and there, and we would go whenever we could. Um, in my 
12th year, uh, CCD got very strange. They weren't teaching the faith. They were teaching everything but the faith. And my mother pulled us out, all three of us. Yeah, my own experience was similar, and I won't um, uh, mention where, but uh, the the point is uh, uh, this is a time, of course, in our church when we were struggling, I think, to find our way. And for those of us who were young, you and I are only a year apart, actually. I won't tell you which side (laughs) of that year. Uh, But nonetheless, um, I remember having these discussions much later in life, uh, both with my wife and with siblings and so forth, and looking back and reflecting on the difficulty I think we had, or most especially our parents had, in sort of finding their footing in those years after the, the council. Um, and for myself, I think uh, I suffered uh, as a consequence of it, uh, because unlike my wife, who went through Catholic schools in a fairly conservative, orthodox environment uh, her entire life, who really was well-seated in the faith, um, I struggled to catch up later in life when I began to have questions about uh, what today you and I would agree are basic elements of the faith. Correct, yes. Uh, it, yes. Was a, it was a difficult time. And, of course, um, I don't want to make the uh, the program, the conversation, largely about the council, uh, but we do know that John Paul II spent so much of his papacy really helping to unpack the confusion Correct. that yes, was engendered by the council. Yes, there was a lot of misinformation, and I, and I often hear that expression, they threw the baby out with the bathwater, and it was just a, a confusing yeah. time. Very complicated subject, yeah. and certainly uh, worthy of a great deal more conversation than we'll have on it this evening, but um, the, the, the experience is what's important for yourself. Uh, uh, obviously, the, the desire on the part of your parents to hold on to the, the traditions the and everything and else. Traditions, and you know. and there, this, there is grace at, uh, at work here, because I knew that um, the Blessed Mother really entered my life strongly when I was about eight. Um, I had a birthday party, and I had a, that was the only birthday party actually that I had as a child. And one little girl gave me a, a religious birthday card. All the rest were secular, and it had the image of Our Lady of Grace on it. And it was at that. Just looking at that card, I still have that picture. I cut mm-hmm. it out. Um, I fell in love with our mother on my eighth birthday, and um, as as my spirituality grew in the little prayers, you know, the night prayers. I, I just found myself, you know, praying lists of people, those kinds of things. Um, I didn't realize that that was intercessory prayer. I was doing it, but I didn't realize it until much later. So uh, let me explore that for a moment. Now, did your parents expose you to a natural pattern of prayer on a daily basis? And just so my mother taught us a little prayer before bed. Mm. You know, it was in Hungarian, you know, and it, and I just, I started adding to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, you know, God bless mommy as we take our rest you know god your eyes are open you're mm-hmm. watching over me and i i started adding the world and the and people in heaven and people in purgatory and i wanted everybody to go to heaven and i started mm-hmm. adding all of these things and then i would start adding lists of people yeah you know the importance i think and we stress this so many times i know francis um, and i have had this conversation on this very program uh, about the importance of our um, exposing our children to prayer, to exactly. regular times of prayer, and uh, certainly no criticism of my own parents. We had a pattern when I was very young that we sort of fell away from. In fact, I even remember, uh, you know, Good Friday celebrations where my mother would have us kneeling for uh, somewhere, uh, you know, close to an hour on, on on the afternoon of Good Friday, and we prayed the Rosary and she read the Bible to us. I do remember those, but as I think some of the confusion of that time, uh, you know, began to manifest. 
manifest itself. We moved away from that. It was mm-hmm. as though we were um, understanding that we were to be moving away from that, and we did. And of course, we lost the rosary, and we lost well, so much Well, the rosary didn't enter my life until I was 14. Oh. It was much later, and I remember the movie of Fatima was on. Yeah. And my mother said, oh, kids, come in here. You have to see this. So she made us sit down and watch this. And I remember I was just so excited by this. I ran upstairs, hmm. and I threw my windows open, and I started praising Mary from my window <laughs> and praying my rosary for the first time. It was it was very powerful. Wow. And I had never prayed the rosary before, and I just fell in love with it at that time. and didn't realize that all of this was getting me ready for my confirmation, which was a few years yeah. down the line. We don't realize, I think, it's true that, uh, certainly not as children, but uh, even as we look back on uh, some of our uh, middle teen and adult years, we can't uh, always see, certainly as we're going through it, how those experiences might be preparing us. Uh, as I say, the rosary was a central theme in my early childhood that we later sort of moved away from, but I never lost my uh, attraction for it. And it was uh, not much later, but early on in my married life where my wife and I sort of rededicated ourselves to the rosary. And that actually was the prayer that we did with our children with some consistency. Yeah. Um, so now we did, I did that with my children because we homeschooled. and daily mass and the rosary was what I was giving my children every day and so they now as young adults they still do it on their own and I'm I'm so thrilled to see them embracing this devotion and Mm. just following through on it on their own so um, and getting back to the the preparation um, we had moved to a new house we moved twice in in that city and um, we built this house and uh, somebody had told my mother that there was a Hungarian priest in this community that had been wanting to meet our family because they knew we were Hungarian. And my mother had been pushing it off because the house wasn't ready. I mean, we still had boxes. They had to lay the sod in it. And I remember this day, my parents are on the front lawn laying sod and this car drives up the driveway and this old man gets out. It's a, it's the Hungarian priest who had been trying to meet up with us. Turns out he was the priest who gave my mother first communion in Hungary and prepared her for her first communion. He was living only five miles away from us in the same town in Wisconsin. And so what happened from there is my mother asked him if he would prepare my brother, my sister, and I for confirmation. So he tutored us in the Baltimore Catechism, which was not something you're supposed to be doing, but he did. So you were, were you attending catechism at no. this time? Now, how old are you? I'm, I'm preparing for confirmation probably about 16. 16, okay. And uh, were you attending Catholic schools at the time? We went to public school. Public my schools, parents could okay. not afford it. We were pretty... Um, not doing well. I mean, yeah. you know, they're immigrants, yeah. and we worked their, they worked their way up. Yeah. So My, my uh, parents actually did quite well, but we were nonetheless uh, in public schools also. Catholic because schools the Catholic were very schools, expensive, and there were three of us. Away. And yeah. So, yeah. So I went to public school, and uh, Father Laszlo, he came to our house, mm. and my brother is four years younger than me. My sister is 11 months younger, and we were all trained the same. We were, he taught us the same, but the grade he expected of from us for our level was mm-hmm. different. He expected me to get the highest, my sister a little bit lower. Now, how often would you spend with him each week? I don't I don't really remember how, how often we... I just remember him coming to the house, and we had that little Baltimore catechism book, and he gave us homework, and we had to answer the questions mm. and, and do that. And so then... I didn't know where our confirmation was going to be, and it wasn't at our local parish. It was actually at Holy Hill. 
Ah, now explain <laughs> yeah. about Holy Hill. Holy Hill is um, is now a basilica minor mm-hmm. in Hubertus, Wisconsin, and it is um, the um, Carmelite Fathers Discalced, mm-hmm. and um, we would. Go, it wasn't at that time. It was Mary Help a Christian, and right. as as a child, we would go there for picnics, and we did the Stations of the Cross sometimes. And it was around the time of our confirmation that my mother decided we were all going to be enrolled in the scapular. So in the Therese Chapel, which is just underneath the main um, mm-hmm. church, uh, we had this. I remember this little ceremony. This priest came, and the four of us, and he gave us the scapular. And um, I'm still wearing it to this day. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it was it was interesting. And then uh, confirmation. I guess they pulled children from different areas, or I guess mm-hmm. the misconfirmation. So we were part of the Hungarian Church in Milwaukee. That he kind of put us with that because we would go downtown there was this um, church that it was just a small community of Hungarians that would have mass from time to time mm-hmm. so I remember my father really liked that so we would go there um, but that was the church that they tied us to for this so you had a very good grounding in the faith a little question about that it sounds as yeah. though you were well uh, the faith well I mean the understanding of God was there um, I didn't really understand all the nuances I was just doing it without understanding mm-hmm. you know just living the faith without really having the, the you knowledge. Know, you know, it's interesting because I've had this conversation with so many other parents and uh, some uh, who have an opinion that I frankly wrestle with, and that is, well, I'm going to let my 12, my 14, my 16-year-old make their own decision about that faith issue and where they stand. I think they are entitled to that. And my reaction always gently but nonetheless firmly is, you're throwing them to the wolves. You you can't leave a young child like that with that uh, decision. You've got to give them the grounding and the faith in whatever means. It sounds as though your mother secured a very effective means, uh, but if the um, catechetical instruction that's necessary isn't available, if you don't have the benefit like we do here with yeah. fine Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, you've got to do something to make sure that your children are exposed. Of course, the best schooling is your example. Right? Exactly. If you're not living the faith, then your children aren't going to pick up on it. I do re- have have clear images of seeing my parents sitting on the edge of their bed at night saying prayers. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't and as I got older, I didn't see that, but I remember when I was little, you know, I'd walk by and they were sitting on the edge of the bed. And I remember my father on one side and my mother on the other. They were they were praying. And I remember the rosary on the table. Um, uh, The little we had one little tiny statue of Mary. And I have that now. Um, But I remember just picking it up and holding it had little doors and I would open it and close. (laughs) I was like five years old. But I remember um, that that left an impression on me. You know, you bring up a good point. Uh, we talk about this, my wife and I, about the little things that we've tried to do. Of course, we have children that are up to uh, almost 30 years of age, and uh, our youngest, who we just dropped off at school today for the first day of school. But uh, we have always tried to have the symbols of the faith represented throughout the house. That's very important, yes. Uh, A Bible open somewhere in the middle of the house. We've always had that. Of course, crucifixes in each of the rooms of the house. Mm -hmm. We keep rosaries at our nightstand so that the kids can see it. Um, We do try to, um, you know, acknowledge the feasts for specific saints and so forth. And I want to get into the discussion about, in this uh, larger context, and you've already mentioned Holy Hill and, and Teresa, uh, what other influences do you think now, and I'll, I'll allow you to speculate, began to sort of um, 
present the the um, call to Carmel, even in your early life. Now we're still in your uh, mid-teens. So, um, I just I just realized that the Blessed Mother was very very strong. I started doing things that I that I don't. I guess that's promptings of the Holy Spirit. I didn't mm-hmm. understand. I remember one particular Easter, and it was the confirmation years, right around that time. Um, I was fasting for three days, just. Just water. Mm-hmm. I just I had water. And my mother, I remember saying, you got to eat something. I don't want you to pass out. And I just said, no, I'm not going to eat. And I don't know why I was doing it. I just really felt like I had to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that Easter, we went to St. Josephat's Basilica, or I think it is his Basilica, in, in Milwaukee for Easter, for the, for, the, for the Easter Mass. And I remember sitting there. It was one of the most powerful experiences I had. Um, I was in the church, but I was alone with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't put my finger on what was happening. It was just the most amazing experience. And I was, like I said, it was around that time. Um, and you could have, the whole building could have blown up and I wouldn't have felt it. That's, mm-hmm. that it was so, so powerful. And it would be a long time before I'd have such another experience. That was just kind of a, a foretaste. Um, and when I went to college, from uh, from my home, the rosary was the commitment I made that yeah. I would pray the rosary no matter what every day, and the scapular consecration prayer, which is is interesting, that came into my hands with the enrollment, and I have said that prayer every morning mm. since that time. Um, didn't understand what that was doing for me, but if I if I look at the words now and now with in hindsight, I can see wow. That was a very powerful prayer that I was making every day to give myself to the Blessed Mother. Consistency, and we said it before, patterns that we develop, I think are critically important. You know, uh, I had not uh, ever fallen away from the faith, but when I joined the military and I began to travel the world uh, and experience some of the challenges that we face in our life, inevitably, um, I always knew when I found myself in difficult situations of trial and tribulation, it was time for me to turn back and spend more time in a chapel. I always knew that there was that voice. And I know now, I understand yeah. it was the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I think, and again, I want to emphasize this grounding, not only of ourselves, but of our children in the elements of the faith and giving them uh, that that taste and that, that uh, insight, even at a very young age, that they need will serve them well when yeah. they face those that's, inevitable that's trials. Exact, that's exactly right. And I didn't even understand about adoration until much later. I mean, we didn't have that kind of thing. Um, I didn't know about that in the churches. I don't know if it was just in our area or for something that they just said, we're not doing anymore. Mm. Um, but adoration didn't come into my life until much later. Yeah. Um, but it, it was the Blessed Mother and that, that, prompt, that scapular consecration. And then Therese, the little flower, she would pop up. <laughs> in my single years. Um, well, that's what it, absolutely had been my next question is, which saints drew you? Now, obviously, you had a, a great relationship with the Blessed Mother early on. I didn't have that experience personally. It was, for me, St. Joseph, actually, uh, probably most prominently early on in my in my walk. Um, there were... Uh, individuals I knew, priests, uh, for example, who I had conversation with. But in terms of the saints, I think St. Joseph was perhaps the only one who played a significant influence in my life. We went to a church called Holy Family, and mm-hmm. so um, we we were exposed to that very early on. But uh, you mentioned St. Therese. What, what, other, what uniquely about her and perhaps what other saints drew you to Carmel early on? Um, I just, the simplicity, the littleness, because I, I was very much attracted to that. Um, 
I just, when I started school, I didn't speak English. So I always felt stupid that first year in kindergarten. Um, I remember they enrolled us and the teacher said, oh, you just came over. And my mom says, no, no, they were born here. We just didn't teach them the English. Uh, so there I am sitting in, in uh, kindergarten and I can't even ask to go to the restroom. <laughs> and just listening to the other children. And it took me a while to catch up. Um, so just always feeling very small. I think that that sense of just feeling very small, um, that attracted me to Therese because she talked about the little way, mm. you know, and it was all about little, you, you know, and doing things little, but doing them well. Mm-hmm. And I tended to be a perfectionist in things, you know, when I draw things and paint things, um, it was always about doing it as best as I could, homework, writing as neat as you can, you know. So I think that whole principle of doing the little things well Mm -hmm. i think that was just something i was living and so that's why i was very much attracted to her but other saints um not so much carmelite saints holy hill little saints book my mom Mm -hmm. on me a little paperback Mm -hmm. i remember specifically saint Clair. she her her picture you know i'd read it over and over the cover fell off i just read over Uh, saint agnes Mm -hmm. these these were just powerful women um those two in particular just really jumped out for me so I know uh, in um, my own uh, family, we have tried to help our children find particular saints, not, not uh, uh, you know, in any way pushing them in the direction of uh, a particular saint. But uh, I remember there was a year that I sort of identified a specific saint for each one of my children. And I would pray to that saint for my child, but I also exposed them to that saint. And I would give them a little history about uh, a particular saint or what the church had taught about them and what their particular mission was or where they had spent uh, perhaps uh, the majority of their, their ministry while they were on the earth. And it was a great way to at least begin to expose our children and in your case, it obviously had a great influence. Uh, the, the exposure to the saints early on in our life, I think, is so important. And again, our children and, and we ourselves will find our way through um, the, the large army of saints that we have been blessed uh, with by the church. But um, it's important, I think, that we help our children understand that there is um, um, you know, a source of strength. There are those individuals who we can turn to. I've had people ask me, and of course, I've said this so many times on the program before, why so many saints? Why so many? Why don't we just turn everything to Jesus? Or they might say, why don't we just turn to Jesus and Mary? And of course, I mentioned early on, I'm a father. St. Joseph is very important to me. And St. Michael, for my son who thinks of himself still as a super superhero, <laughs> uh, you know, has a great affinity to, to him. St. Paul, for one of my other sons. And, and I think it's important that we introduce our children to these ideas that they can begin to uh, uh, develop a, a relationship with the saints. When we come back, I want to talk more about your call to Carmel, what influence that has on you today, and how you're incorporating that into your everyday life. I think that's uh, a, an important point for uh, us to understand. I remind you, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.
to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. This is your host, Mark Danis. Francis Harry is away this week, but we have the great pr- uh, privilege and pleasure to have Marika Zimmerman in the studio with us. And Marika is a member of our local OCDS, uh, Discalced Secular Carmelite Community, here in Dayton, Ohio. And she's uh, getting ready to make her temporary promise this year. We're going to talk about that a little bit, Marika, without giving away too much of the uh, details of that. Uh, I do just want to help our listeners understand and for those who may not, uh, what the sort of state of progression is throughout the Carmelite uh, order for seculars. And I should emphasize, I think this is a very important point, one I know that we've made on this program before, but one I think bears uh, repeating, and that is that the secular order is a full-fledged um, participant, if you will, community of the world order of the secular discalced Carmelites. And I think that's very important for our listeners to understand. We're not somehow bolted on or an extension of or subordinate to. Uh, we, of course, are subordinate to uh, the leadership of the order, but we are full-fledged members of the order simply called to live out our call in the world. And um, it's important, I think, also to point out that the order began with seculars, as so many orders did, actually. Uh, our order began um, in, um, in the, the Holy Land with uh, the um, caves on Mount Carmel, where monks uh, began to gather to live out the life, the call, uh, represented and modeled by St. Elijah in, um, in, of course, the Old Testament, uh, where he felt the call to silence and the call to solitude and the call to simplicity where he could seek the Lord uh, in those silent places. And we respond to a similar call. Even in our modern, busy, secular world, the call has not changed. In fact, the gift that our um, mother, Teresa, Teresa of Avila in our case, gave us was that return to the rule uh, more, I think, spiritually understood and interpreted Uh, that our very souls were the cells that we were to dwell in. And so I want to move from a little bit of the history, Marika, that we've uh, been discussing and appreciate giving uh, our audience that that insight and and talk a little bit about your call to karma. What is it you think? Uh, I can relate my own experience, and I know I can almost define the day, uh, or at least a week um, specifically that I recall, where I knew I was receiving a call to Carmel, and it is a call for our listeners. I should emphasize that as well. This isn't just something first. It's not something we decide, right? Uh, secondly, it is a genuine call, and, and the voice, I think, ultimately becomes very clear. What was your call like? Well, actually, Carmel has been pursuing me most of my life. I just didn't realize that I was, I guess maybe I was asleep or something. I was missing something. Um, but I was discerning a call to the secular order of some sort um, for about, I would say, it started in the late 90s. And I, I was like exploring the Benedictines, the Dominicans, and the Franciscans. Those three, mm. I really, besides the Carmelites, I, those three really had, I had charisms that really were attractive to me. And it wasn't until um, 1999, um, we were living in Texas, and there was an Ocarm monastery 
and there was a secular group there, and they invited me to pray with them. In fact, they actually wanted me to join their group and everything, and I just really said, no, I'm, this is, I'm not sure. Now, you should just say quickly, for those of our listening audience who may not be familiar with the distinction between the Ocarm, the ancient observance, and the secular uh, discalced Carmelites. Uh, yes, one one is before the reform, and the other one is after the reform. But they both claim that Teresa or Therese are their saints. Yeah, <laughs> and I found that very interesting, as especially now that I'm in this community, um, I'm learning so much more than I knew back then. Right. Um, in fact, at that particular time, I didn't know that there was a distinction. So I was just praying with these um, lovely women, and um, we were only there for a short amount of time. But they invited me to come to their meetings. They met Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. And it was just six women. It was a small group. Um, But I enjoyed their prayers. But when they had their meetings, they asked me to leave because I was not part of their community. But I could pray with them. And I found that to be very fruitful. And it wasn't until the following year we moved to Pennsylvania um, and my mother died. Uh, the liturgy, the hours entered my life, mm-hmm. and that became a very powerful prayer. And there were some um, secular order Carmelites in that in that parish, mm-hmm. and um, I was learning more about the discalced Carmelites, and they invited me to come to that group, and I was thinking about it. So I actually started. I was there with six months before we had to move again, so it didn't work out for me. But it was actually a mass. I was sitting in a mass, and. The reading was about following the way of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that was like somebody just grabbed me <laughs> and pulled me in. I can't explain it. It was just so powerful. And I. No, we have these moments in our life, don't we? We hope that we've had these moments in our life. He related uh, a childhood experience. I had a similar one. I was in my uh, uh, mid teens as well. And somewhat different in that uh, my parents actually were praying over me. My parents uh, were part of the charismatic movement at the time, and they were praying over me. And this is uh, remains with me to this very day, as your experience does, because it was so profound and such an insight that I knew I didn't have the intellectual capacity really to grasp or to articulate, uh, but a sense of forgiveness that my soul literally had just been cleaned uh, in that moment. I'd been cleansed and purified, and um, only later did I come to understand what it was, but uh, the experience remains with us, as these types of experiences often do. And we know it's the, the Lord working, the Holy Spirit working in us to just sort of nudge us along the path, isn't it? Correct, it, yes. Very comforting. Uh, that's, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I, I went ahead and I went down and I um, checked out that group downtown Pittsburgh and I was there for about six months and uh, they didn't have a lot of people that were beginning formation. I was just tutored by one particular individual and um, things were just not ready. It was just not ready in my life because we had 9-11 happened, mm. deaths in the family, loss of job. We had to move again. Um, so it was not time. You know, some of our listeners might be wondering, and I I do want to share the number, too, for those who are listening and may want to participate in our conversation. Either you've got a question or maybe an experience that you'd want to share about your own call to Carmel, what's unique about your experience. That number, if you'd like to join our conversation, is 1-866-333-6279. Again, that's 1-866-333-6279. 
The, the point I wanted to make, Merck, is, um, of course, I'm a member of the, the council of our local community, and I've gotten to see this uh, development of our uh, community. We broke off from uh, a community down in Cincinnati where we were about 50-plus members, uh, and now we're up again here in the Dayton area uh, to somewhere on the order of 33 to 35 members. We'll see how uh, this year of temporary promises go and what additional individuals may join us. But um, it, it, I think, is important for our listeners to understand, again, those who may not be in Carmel. The process is very deliberate. It's very well uh, outlined. Correct. The yes, curriculum that you're expected to go through uh, is both rigorous and uh, quite quite uh, challenging, I think is fair to say. Uh, but we're trying to stress that this is a real commitment. And you've been involved now in Carmel. Uh, if we add the years that you were in these other communities, how long have you been uh, participating in, in the life of Carmel? Um, I've it started in 99 1999 is mm. when i started that carmelite monastery just drew me in a way that i there were things that happened to me there and it was just a it was a little house and then um the sisters received a uh, permission from pope john paul ii to build a monastery for the new millennium mm-hmm. our lady of grace and fairest love so here we have our lady of grace again which was that little card for my when i was eight Mm -hmm. years old so there were these little things that you know just your heart just wraps itself around and says there's something here and i have to explore this yeah i I stress you've been involved now for some 13 years and here you are just getting ready to make your temporary promise and in in fairness you moved in there were several times start and stops and so forth i've been involved in carmel uh, since the the point that I entered, I haven't had a break. I've been uh, blessed in that I didn't have to move. But I think now, if I don't do my math wrong, some eight years, and I've just made my definitive promise. So uh, I think it's very important that our listeners understand um, this is not something where we say, you know, I think I'll try that for a while, or I'll show up every other month, or uh, maybe I'll spend a little time with those uh, uh, Carmelite folks and then go and do something else. Once you make the commitment, of course, now you there live is and time. breathe it every day. It I is mean, a lifetime it, commitment, and I've—I just know for my own self how my life has changed. Just being part of this community, um, my prayer has taken on a, a, a different structure. Um, there's a lot more of it. Um, and there's a lot more reading, um, not just the community reading, but there, there's, there's this exploration that I want to have. You know, my, my, my soul is just hungry for wanting to know more. I'm reading things that even aren't the assigned readings. Um, I'm not understanding a lot of it, but that'll come in time. But I'm like, there's little snippets that I get little things. And then I take that to mass and then I'm like, so let me ask you this. What, um, if anything may have surprised you? As you get ready to make your temporary promise, what surprised you about now, I think, for some time now, your consistent involvement in the local community here? What surprised you about Carmel? And then I'm going to ask what didn't surprise you but was, uh, you know, sort of affirming exactly what you expected and very uh, confirming, if you will, of your experience. Um Actually, you know, the, the the very first few months, there was a lot of emphasis on the Saint on Saint Therese, and mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, um, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the saints. And I said, that's nice, but what about Jesus and Mary? You know, our God, mm-hmm. which is everything. I mean, this is what everything you know is is centered around. And I and I thought, are we going to spend time? 
talking about God. You know, so I was trying to figure out how the two are coming together. So in the the very first few months, I found myself a little frustrated mm. because it was all Therese or Teresa, you know, and I was like, is that it? Mm. <laughs> so it wasn't until I spent more time in prayer and then that I allowed that year of formation to happen and just, you know, you really need to give yourself time and you really have to spend that time in prayer. And then God really opens up understanding about different things. You bring right. those little things, those little questions that drive you crazy and you say, okay, Lord, please help me on this one. And you just take it just one thing at a time. Just work on one question at a time. Yeah, don't a, rush it. It's a very good point. Um, each of us is called in a unique way to Carmel, and our experience of it is somewhat unique. I mean, in fairness, it's not um, sort of all over the map, but we're, we're individuals. We have an individual relationship with our Lord, and so there is an individual element to it. Even though we are exposed to the same literature, the great saints, of course, uh, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa, St. Therese, um, and from my own perspective, Elizabeth of the Trinity, who I have a great devotion to, uh, Brother Lawrence, uh, all of whom we've done uh, some um, uh, programs on. Uh, these are the folks who we look to as guides, as counsels, uh, as models along the path. But you're absolutely right. Um, we don't want to get so caught up in our relationship with those individual saints that we lose the central theme. Our Blessed Mother, certainly as the patron of our order, uh, matron of our order, but, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, who is the center, obviously, uh, of the order and the focus of the order. Yes, and, uh, and, and our saints are, are like our brothers and sisters. They help us along the way. It's like our family members. Mm-hmm. We, our focus isn't on the family member. Mm-hmm. We are, as a family, moving towards the same purpose. We're all trying to get to heaven together. So, right. you know, but we help each other along the way. So our focus is not on in, individually on each person. Yeah. We work together. I want to ask you about your prayer life. You mentioned it a moment ago, and I want to ask... Um, um, how has Carmel, beyond, um, you've mentioned a, a number of areas at a, at a somewhat high level, but how has Carmel really affected your prayer life? And I'll, I'll maybe tease you with this observation. When I was drawn to Carmel, and I don't want to go into the details of it, but I was very clear in my own mind that I wanted to understand the process of sanctification. Now, I think at that stage, it was probably more an inwardly focused uh, desire, but I wanted to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in my soul and what it was that drew me through a process that John Paul II really had helped me understand through his writings, that there is progress to be made in our Mm -hmm. earthly journey. And so I knew that there was a transformation that could occur, and I knew prayer was the means of that transformation, along with many other things, but centrally the theme was prayer. And so that's what sort of drew me, and I don't want to go into how that changed for me, but how did it change for you, your prayer life specifically? Well, I knew I had to, they talk about the six M's, we were told, and, and the morning and evening prayers. So honoring commitments, that's first and foremost. You have to honor the commitments. If you make a promise to do something, then you have to follow through. Fidelity is a key thing in prayer. Um, so that morning and evening prayer, mm-hmm. um, even if, if the time changes, but you do it mm-hmm. every day. If it's at 8 o'clock at night or at 10 o'clock at night, whenever, because we have family life. So, right. you know, your family is your first vocation and everything else, you know, your prayer is you, you say, yes, I'm going to do the prayer. But you let God sort it out for you. Right. So you let God be in charge of your day, not the other way around. Right. And when you say, okay, God is the center of my day, 
like I have this commitment, I've had it for a very long time, build my day around the Mass. Mm-hmm. That is that is something that it just is central to who I am. Mm-hmm. And that has brought me through so many different things. That's another that's another, another one another one of our M's, right? <laughs> yes. You'll have to cover those six M's. The date for... the daily mass. Um we had um so that that was a commitment. I said no matter which mass I would go to, I would um, you know, everything else would fall in line behind mm-hmm. that. But now with the morning and evening prayer. Um, but before then, um, about in the mid-90s, I began holy hours at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that came out of the St. Bridget prayers. A lot of people love those 15 prayers of St. Bridget, mm-hmm. and so do I. The passion of our Lord is very powerful, and it ta- it evolves as you grow. I mean, there's only a year commitment on that. But I encourage people to keep praying the the Stations of the Cross, meditating on the Passion of our Lord. That 3 o'clock commitment, just honoring that, um, the Lord has just melded everything together for me. Um, And I'm finding that the morning and evening prayer um, is taking on a different beauty and a rhythm that I I never would have expected. because I'm honoring that and I'm taking my time with it, not just to finish it because it's an obligation. And, and morning, evening prayer, and you mentioned it a moment ago, but the Liturgy of the Hours. Yes. Uh, the prayer of the church. Yes. This is the prayer that the religious pray. The and official we prayer as seculars, of the church. Yes, correct. Uh, are, of course, required to pray and yeah. w- within reason. I mean, obviously, we have to make the commitment and we have to rely on the Lord to find the time for us. And it's funny you say that because uh, at a station time in my life when I was traveling a lot more than I am now, and thankfully, I'm not as much anymore, but um, I used to, um, I have to confess, I used to pride myself on my ability to find churches and masses, uh, even though I had a busy schedule. And uh, one day, and in all earnest, I think I felt the Lord literally tap me on the shoulder. And, you know, as I was talking about how pleased I was that I was able to make masses in all these places, and I wasn't actually prideful about it, but I was genuinely uh, pleased that I was experiencing it. And I felt the Lord tap me on the shoulder, and he said, hey, dummy, I'm the one who's finding all those churches for you. You're just, you know, you're just filling in the gaps, so to He's speak. Leading so, you to where he wants yeah. you to be. So we have morning and evening prayer. We have the Mass. Mm-hmm. Give us another one of the M's. Oh, um, we have meditation. Mm-hmm. We have Mary. Uh, we have mission. And we have the meetings. Yeah, meetings, of course, are our monthly meetings. Mission. Um, mission, you know, whichever the Lord, he leads us to evangelize exactly. in so many different ways. Um, for me, it began with the rosary apostle that I was making rosaries for the missions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, plain and simple, that's where it began. We are apostolic contemplatives we are seculars we live in the world and so we have a call to mission we absolutely have a call to prayer and deep contemplative prayer and no uh, less a level and intensity than any of the um, uh, discalced carmelites who may be living in a carmel who may be living in a monastery may be living the monastic life uh, even the aromatical the hermit life we have the same call to deep contemplative prayer uh, Teresa of Avila gives us that example. St. John of the Cross gives us that example of people who live very active lives and yet uh, never lost their center. Their center was deep contemplative interior prayer uh, with our Lord. Describe for us a little bit your daily routine beyond the six M's. How has it changed other things? Your interaction with your children, with your husband, uh, with other aspects of this mission. That, that's the uh, the interesting thing is because uh, I you know I wanted to make sure that the family was okay with me following this path. So um, I knew that this was 
the Lord's calling for me because they were behind me 100%. When I, when I told them about the, the lifetime commitment, this was just not something I'm joining for a few years or for a few months, that this was a path of growth for me and that I really, and I explained the whole, whole process of how I was being called to do this. And they said, well, if it's important to you, it's important to us. And that was a very powerful statement from my family. And I found that, um, in, just in, as I'm reading, um, sometimes I'm sharing with my children. They live still at home. They're, they're young adults, but they, they have their own lives, but they're still living at home. The economy is probably the best ex- explanation for that. Um, but my daughter, uh, her confirmation saint is Therese. <laughs> So she, the little flower is so much in her life. Um, so when I find something as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, okay, I think I need to share this with her. And I'll just say, you want to hear this? And I sit down and she just, she just takes it and just embraces it. Um, my son, he just takes things in a different way. I shared other things with him, but we have lively discussions. Um, well, we homeschooled, so they, they were used to that whole process of, you know, just learning together as a family. Mm-hmm. This is just something else. This is now mom going to school in, in a way, and um, we're good with it. That's, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's been interesting. I think that's the most interesting uh, challenge that so many people face when they first come to Carmel, maybe even later in life, uh, as they begin to live out uh, the call to Carmel, and we live uh, the rule. Right. We still have the rule. And I think that's so important. You said making the commitments and living by those commitments. That's what the rule gives us. It says these are the things that you are required to do. And the constitutions, of course, um, that, that help us understand how we are to conduct our lives in the context of um, the, the charismatic um, uh, call to a very deep contemplative prayer life. But you have to look at your heart, the disposition. Are you filling squares? You know, that this is, I have to do the morning and evening prayer. Oh, I have to go do this. Right. Or is it, I'm going to go spend some time with the Lord. Could you just give me 15 minutes of just quiet? I'm just going to go yeah. away for, you know, and whatever form that takes. Maybe you have to go outside and sit on your patio because yeah. um, it's noisy in your house, whatever. I mean, the Lord will provide if you're sincere about, you know, fulfilling that obligation, but in a loving way, not just because I have to do it. Oh, these are things I have to check off and then then I'm, I'm a Carmelite. No, 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 this is not how it works. Yeah. It's, it's your heart. It's the, your whole person is being transformed. And I think that's it. It's a process of transformation. I know when I first came uh, to Carmel, I certainly had a call, and I was very interested in this process, as I say, of transformation and sanctification, and I wanted to understand how the Holy Spirit would work in me. But I think what the Lord taught me is, you're going to do some of this work, and here are the rules by which we play, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and there was a sense of commitment and duty, which I don't think is inappropriate. But and the some duty, sacrifice, too. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be the leaving behind of certain things. We couldn't live the life in karma that we live, Marika, without leaving some things behind. Let's oh, be absolutely, fair. yeah. Uh, we had to change our lives in some way. But your family follows behind that because you're setting an example. And they're like, okay, so... Something is different here. Right. She's choosing not to go with us for this. Why? Right, right. You know, and it, maybe there's no interest there anymore. Yeah. Well, why isn't there no interest? Well, that opens up conversation for the family as well. And, and then I think it moves to exactly what you said. It moves to the heart to where we're not doing 
any of what we do as a sense of obligation or duty, but it's almost um, the, the sense of loss if we're not doing those things, if we're not spending the time with the Lord, if we happen uh, to be caught up in the busyness of our day and there isn't an opportunity p- perhaps to get to Mass, that's very challenging for us. That's very yeah. difficult for us. So there's a sense of loss. You're someone who's getting ready to make a temporary promise. Uh, this comes after uh, a number of years, in your case, of preparation. Um, and it is a few years for anyone who enters Carmel. What does the temporary promise mean to you? What is it that you're about to undertake in the uh, in the uh, order? Um, it's kind of a, for me, it, it's a, it's, it's just getting ready. It's, it's that, it's almost like the engagement. When I was engaged to my husband before we got married, there was that time, um, getting ready to be married, that, that lifetime commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was solely exclusively his. You know, we had understandings within the relationship of what is expected of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can best equate it to when we're engaged in our married married life, you know, before we get married. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of preparation that goes on. There's a lot of sorting out your pre-cana classes and all these kinds of things. Um, and then, then comes that final day when you say yes. And um, you give each other that that promise mm-hmm. um, that you're going to be each other's forever. So at this point, you've accepted the ring. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in the engagement phase, and you're awaiting. That's right. Uh, that that final uh, commitment. Uh, last question: What advice would you give to one of our listeners, any of our listeners who are out there now, saying, "You oh, know, I know there's a group." you know, downtown or the next city over. Maybe it's a further commitment, a further travel to, to make it to uh, one of the uh, communities. Uh, but, you're, but you're discerning and you're wrestling with that question. What would your advice be to that person? I would say probably spend two good solid weeks in front of the Blessed Sacrament and ask the Lord if mm-hmm. this is really what he wants for you, and then just jump in and go explore. Because yeah. if you just keep putting it off and say, well, maybe, and waiting for somebody to pull you, it'll never happen. You have to get out there and do it yourself. Yeah. The Lord's waiting for you to take that first step, and then he'll do he'll all the rest. Yeah. That's right. Great advice. Well, thank you, Marika, and thank you for joining us on this particular my program. my pleasure. Uh, we'd love to have you back sometime, maybe after you make your temporary promise, and, <laughs> all right. and have you share with us what the experiences are afterwards. In closing... Let me read a prayer that we haven't read here for a while, but certainly one that we um, in Carmel read quite often. O beautiful flower of Carmel, most fruitful vine, splendor of heaven, holy and singular, who brought forth the Son of God, still ever remaining a pure virgin, assist us in this our necessity, O star of the sea, help and protect us, show us that thou art our mother. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Mother and ornament of Carmel, pray for us. Virgin flower of Carmel, pray for us. Patroness of all who wear the scapula, pray for us. Hope of all who die wearing the scapula, pray for us. St. Joseph, friend of the Sacred Heart, pray for us. St. Joseph, chaste spouse of Mary, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron, pray for us. O sweetheart of Mary, be our salvation. Well, thank you for joining us again this week on Carmelite Conversations. Francis Harry will be back to rejoin us again next week, where we'll be doing a show on Teresa of the Andes. Until then, God bless. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations.